0: Knapp, you're one of the last of the classical ethnographers, someone who goes into study of relatively uh, uncontacted, technologically uh, traditional hunting people. Uh, And that's not the way a lot of anthropology is done these days. I remember when I was at MIT having a conversation at a faculty lunch with a professor of anthropology and I asked him what tribe he studied. He said he studied the uh, nuclear engineers of Los Alamos labs in New Mexico. (laughs) That's, anthropology has changed. So can you just tell us what, what's it like to go out and study a uh, uncontacted people in the middle of the Amazon rainforest? I mean, just pack a steamer trunk full of bug spray and peanut butter and <laughs> hire someone to drop you off and say, pick me yes. up in six months? Can well, Remarkably,
1: Steve, that's pretty much the way some of it happened. But when I first walked into Yanomami Village thinking I was going to do the perfunctory one year of field research or maybe less, go back to my university, Write my doctoral dissertation, publish a book maybe after two or three years of thinking about it, then return to the tribe ten years later and do the expected thing about woe is me, what has the world and technology done to my people. But the minute I walked into a, my first Yanomava village, I realized that I was witnessing a really precious thing and I knew I would have to come back again and again and I did. And even at the last hour of my last field trip, they hauled me away kicking and dragging because I wanted to do more. I realized toward the end that my work had offended a large fraction of anthropologists and philosophers and social scientists, mainly because I began advocating evolutionary theory. I realized that this opposition was eventually making it into the political authorities in Venezuela, as well as in the anthropology academic community. So there were always obstacles put in my way to sabotage my field research. So, the last several years that I went to the Anamala, I spent all of my time collecting data meticulously, tape recordings, ID photographs, and I'm sitting on this vast amount of data now, and I've just been hired by the University of Missouri to begin to exploit all of this data, and it's like being the battleship Missouri decked out, refitted, and set off on the high seas to do battle one more time. (laughs) It's terrific. Uh,
0: Who are the the Yanomama? They were, we know that they are, uh, a lot of people have uh, assumed that they are hunter-gatherers, which is not technically true, Mm because they do. They grow bananas, as I understand it. Mm -hmm. How much do we know about uh, where they came from? We know that the Americas were peopled more than 10,000 years ago. Mm -hmm by hunter-gatherers who came over from, uh, presumably from um, Siberia. But the Yanomamu are not direct descendants of a long chain of
1: hunter-gatherers. Well, what do we least, know about their history? Well, they're not the direct descendants in any de- demonstrable way. <clears throat> when the people in the New World took place, probably, their estimate, 20,000, 30,000 years ago, but people, archaeologists are skeptical about those dates. But they did reach Tierra del Fuego in a period of you know, seven, 8,000 years once they entered the New World. But the tropical forests were... Very little is known about the people in the tropical forests because we don't have much archaeology on it. and We need archaeology to demonstrate the age of the sites there. And it's not the kind of conditions where preservation of artifacts is ideal in any event. There are speculations about vast civilizations on the Amazon River proper and that the invaders from Portugal and Spain decimated these populations and introduced diseases that had, of course, tragic consequences. But a lot of that is just speculation. On the other hand, I have found archaeological sites in the Amazon basin itself that indicates There were some people there, a rather high order of civilization compared to the tropical forest peoples. They're pot ceramics and glass, not glass, obsidian tools and beads, some with holes drilled through them, in the middle of the tropical forest. And very large sites. I, I went to a Yanomama village very recently, well, in my research very recently, 1990. They were sitting on a huge mound. The Anamama didn't know who made the mound, but there were surface things showing up every time it rained. And these ceramics were elegant and very sophisticated, indicating that somebody lived there (coughs) a long time before the Anamama did. (coughs) The Anamama finds celts, polished stone tools, whenever they garden and they think the spirits made them. So there's no really good archaeology and and credible history about the peoples of the New World. A guy by the name of Donald Lathrop developed a hypothesis that when the civilizations that were living on rather abundant fish resources on the general Amazon River were decimated by European diseases, a lot of these people infiltrated and hid out in the hinterlands, and the Anamama are perhaps one like this, but there's no direct evidence. In fact, I think the book 1491 draws attention to this possibility as well. But as far as the Anamama are concerned, they were the first people ever born, ever created. And when they see foreigners come back in wooden things that we call canoes, they realized They, too, have been the consequence of the great flood, and they're coming back as second-class Yanawama. So, foreigners have come in there now. They recognize them as almost human, but not quite, and they're named for foreigners. They have one word for foreigners. Naba. One of them was really sophisticated in one of the villages. I brought an old copy of Time Magazine. Well, it was a new copy when I bought it, but I kept reading it over and over again. <laughs> you could get hungry for reading when you're in the jungle. Anyway, on the back of the Time Magazine was a, a photograph of some Canadian bank, Bank of Canada or something. And the young were looking at him, turning it upside down. and They, they said, well, who are these people? And I said, well, you wouldn't know them there. They live far away. Oh, they're yakwana <laughs> <laughs> That's the next tribe over. Close enough. <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: Well, um, how do you con- conceive the uh, the the relevance of the studies that you did among the, uh, the Yanamama for understanding of human nature in general? I mean, they're clearly not a time capsule of our ancestors. On the other hand, there's much about their lifestyle that's probably closer to that of our ancestors than the way we live right now. How do you, what kind of qualifications would you make for the particularities of their lifestyle mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, an evolutionarily typical uh, mm-hmm.
1: way of life? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. They are not the direct descendants of Stone Age peoples. But ever since the beginning of the first human being that cultivated the first plant and ate some of its product, from that point on, everybody's been a culturally to a certain extent. They're all descendants of, of a hunting and gathering heritage that has been modified by the introduction of domesticated and cultivated foods. All I've been claiming in all of my writings is that The Yanomama are not necessarily the modern-day survivors of the Stone Age. They are, however, the best approximation that we have in the ethnographic world today of living in a kind of environment, a kind of political system, a kind of social system that approximates as closely as you can find human beings today, living in a condition, a state of nature, as it were, that is quite comparable to what must have happened during most of human history. And to that extent, we we can learn a lot of things about politics, political attitudes, violence, aggression, from people like the Aramana. Unfortunately, there aren't many people like the Aramana left. And that's what <coughs> awed and astonished me the first time I saw it. Yeah, when I have said. <coughs>
0: Figures on violence from uh, a variety of uh, hunter-gatherer, mm-hmm. hunter horticulturalist and tribal people. Mm-hmm. I often get the criticism, "Well, these aren't all hunter-gatherers." Mm-hmm. And my response is, "Well, that's that's irrelevant. I'm not uh, for the point of testing the hypothesis as to whether, say, government reduces violence. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter whether they're literally hunter-gatherers. What matters is the value of the independent variable: is government present, is government mm-hmm. uh, absent, and it's." My attitude is always that the value of these peoples are that uh, there are many mm-hmm. features of our present environment that we can't subtract other than by looking at mm-hmm. these people, mm-hmm. whether or not they survive only by hunting and gathering is
1: irrelevant to the effect of that variable. I've had this argument with Marvin Harris and people like that, you're not exactly what you eat, yeah. although in some cases you might eat. The important thing that I've discovered about the Arowana is kind of the answer to uh, the question a lot of highly educated people in our society ask. Oh, it would be so wonderful if we could just go back to an earlier time when life was so much simpler and pleasant and neighbors cooperated. And what I found, the further back in time you go, the more that unpleasant things are ubiquitous in your environment, and that violence is just around the corner, and that wishing for a return to the noble, savage past is possibly one of the biggest errors that one might make philosophically. I don't think life in the state of nature was nearly as pleasant as a lot of people would like it to be. One example I can give from, <clears throat> from my travels across the United States, I happen to have been invited on a trip into the Grand Canyon by the guy who was then the governor of Arizona, Fife Symington. <clears throat> we had the ranger, the, the park ranger, the archaeologist for the Grand Canyon area, along with us. And he took us into parts of the Grand Canyon that most tourists don't see. And one of the most astonishing things was we saw Pueblo houses built into this edge of the Grand Canyon with a thousand foot drop below. And these houses were occupied by prehistoric Indians who were so terrified of their neighbors (laughs) that they climbed down vines and ropes with their kids on their back and firewood under their arm and the day's catch in their baskets because they were just terrified at their neighbors and that's the way the Anamama live. Even the missionaries who've lived among the Anamama the longest have pointed out repeatedly to me and other people that these people are terrified of Neighbors, and it's like Hobbes' war of all against war in, in many respects. And Rousseau's way off the mark. Yeah, maybe not every man against every man, no, every no. village against every village. Right,
0: it's right? right. like it. Let's go back to the beginning, and uh, if you'll indulge me with a question, a couple of questions about about my own obsession language. Mm-hmm. So you wander into this village, you don't speak a word of Yanamama. <laughs> How do you establish the first communication and how, what was it like learning Yanamama? I take it you're, you're fluent in Yan- Yanamama? Well, I used to be. You <laughs> <laughs> used to be. So, t- 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 what t- is it like uh, to uh, try to establish communication without uh, language to begin
1: with? Well, I had the advantage the first day I was in a Yanamama village. I had with me an American Protestant missionary who had spent some time in the Yanamama before I got there. He brought me into the village the first day. He happened to be in that area. I offered him a ride up the the Orinoco River. He hadn't been back to the village for over a year. And we walked into the village and he said, I'm really anxious to see who died. I'm like, what a macabre attitude that is. Anyway, it's important to know who's dead because you don't want to say their names. I mean, you, you might have had a friend there you know, a year ago, and you walk in. Where's Joe? And you could be in a world of trouble because of that. Anyway, he wrote down a number of phrases for me, and with this humble start, I began adding words and ways to, to make these statements meaningful to the onamama. Most of the phrases were things like, "Don't." Don't hit me with that. <laughs> <laughs> but it was things like uh, fetch some firewood or share your food with me. And of course, in, in the course of a few weeks, the, he, the missionary left. I was all alone with the Yanomama there. And they realized at some point very soon after he left that I couldn't speak Yanomama very well. And they thought, he, he must be deaf. So they began shouting at me. <laughs> and that was their solution to our inability to communicate, or at least my inability to communicate with them, was that I, I had some physical defect. And so it must be my hearing. And so they could shout louder and louder at me, and they finally get disgusted and walk away. But slowly I added more and more vocabulary, and I could talk. Reasonably fluently about common things like where do you sleep and who, who's your younger siblings and what village did you come from but i could never at, say six months in the village start penetrating the really sophisticated components of their their world of thought and belief and mythology and things like that that took much much longer
0: when when you did uh enjoy greater mastery of the language. Did you find that the language itself was constraining in terms of the kind of uh, ideas and belief systems that, uh, that could be shared? I mean There have been recent controversy over claims by uh, Daniel Everett that right. another Amazonian, yeah. uh, Amazonian people either, huh, Tribune, uh, yeah. uh, could not or, or chose not to talk about anything that was not in their immediate experience. No abstraction, no talk about the past, no talk about the future. In your experience with the Yanomama, was there uh, concern with uh, entities and systems beyond the five senses?
1: Uh, No, I don't think the the, the Yanomama had the same kind of limitations on the way they dealt with the external world as the and Ha did. Actually, he touched on a fairly significant controversy in your field, linguistics. Oh, yes. With Noam Chomsky. Uh, what was the concept that Dan said? That regression. Enough, recursion. Recursion. Ah. That the the language didn't have recursion and Chomsky believed all languages had recursion. And it was never settled. Interestingly enough, Daniel Everett had a chance to go back in and bring colleagues with him to test this proposition, this theory, that was basically a Chomsky theory. But most of the <coughs> archaeologists or the linguists in Brazil were Chomskyite advocates or students and he failed to get a research permit to do it. Well, when we get a is it <coughs> uh, how easy is it to uh,
0: embed a uh, sentence within another sentence to say for example that uh, bill believes that John is sick
1: yeah, that's very easy to do. Yeah. Um,
0: let's switch from from language to cognition uh, one of the, the your work has attracted so much controversy for its descriptions of violence mm-hmm. and, and sex that people uh, forget but the rich characterization of their, their way of life, their technology, their mythology, yeah. their art, their right. humor, and uh, for me, reading uh, your books, what was uh, impressive to me was uh, how much uh, richness there was in your description mm-hmm. of their lifestyle. And there's one passage in particular that has stuck with me, where you described their uh, how they hunt armadillo. <laughs> <which> <laughs> and armadillos which live underground in labyrinthine burrows and um, they would uh, seal off all the openings to the burrows, but one take a particular kind of fungus, I believe. That, no, uh, it was termite nests. Termite nest that formed a intense smoky right. fire, fan the smoke through into the burrow. Uh, then one of them put his ear to the ground, uh, listening for where the armadillo was. Finally, oh, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. they introduced
1: a vine, a vine with a knot at the with end. With a knot at the end, and they gradually let the vine creep down the burrow and the guy on the ground would keep his ear to the ground. And where it stopped, <clears throat> they assumed, and quite accurately, that the armadillo had suffocated there. So they pulled the vine out and laid it out on the ground and measured determine the exact spot where the armadillo would be and dug down maybe two or three feet through the dense clay and sure enough that's where the right. armadillo would be. <laughs> it's a, a, a astonishing feat of yeah. uh,
0: engineering. Yeah. Can you say something about, you, more generally, your impressions of their their, their their folk science, their folk math, their concept mm-hmm. of number, of causality, of space, of uh, biological processes, of chemical composition. I mean, were they intuitive scientists. Is that all one question? That's, That's all one question, <laughs> yes.
1: Uh, so, Well, first of all, the Aramama have a very limited vocabulary of numbers. They have one, two, and more than two. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult, as an anthropologist who's interested in demography, to, for example, get ages of people They don't reckon ages the same way as we do. However, they do talk about certain human universals that all humans have that we don't even have words for. Uh, Let me give you an example. What do you call this? The pit of your elbow. Well, the anima have a specific word for that, (laughs) and. For example, when I would ask, how old is such and such a person, they would say, young. And then to amplify that, they would say, he is just starting to creep. So you know pretty much the age of that. Or how old was this boy when he first went hunting with his father? He was his muscles were just starting to get hard. And that's a very specific point in everybody's life and how old was this little girl when she was kidnapped by raiders in the next village. She was huddled. Her nipples were just beginning to appear. So they have very precise mm-hmm. ways of indicating characteristics of certain develop ontological dimensions of all forms of life. And they are incredibly interested in insects and the world around them. Uh, Speaking of armadillos, I I once asked my best informant, he he mentioned the name of an insect, and I said, well, what kind of insect is that? And he said, well, you only find them in the entry to an armadillo den. You wouldn't understand that. Well, apparently it's an insect that will only Assemble or flock around the beginning of the armadillo den if the armadillo is there, <laughs> and that's no—that's how they know which dens to light fires in. But you assume oh, no, you're, you're so stupid you <laughs> know them, something like that.
0: Did they? Uh, uh, did, did they make you feel stupid? Uh, yes,
1: they did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's kind of hard to. Uh, I once heard a Protestant missionary who's taking a walked between village A and village B and wanted to come along with me because he had never been to Village B. And this the Anamama the Anomama are very arrogant. I mean they think they're the be all and end all of humanity. And so the missionary was getting kind of annoyed at that, <laughs> he said, Well, if you think the Anamama are really smart, why don't you go make make me a knife? And the Anamama replied, well, if you're so smart, why don't you make me one? <laughs> and It <laughs> involves you centuries of the evolution of technology in the industrial world to make a knife. Division of labor, right? Yeah. The uh,
0: what about their? Uh, s- do they have words or concepts for uh, abstract entities that would might explain uh, their observations of the living world? Do they have any sense of what was passed on, say, from? A, uh, a parent animal to a, a child animal, What mm. what is contained in a, in a seed? Do they have words for any of the forces that push things around or that make the sun rise?
1: You mean like gravity and... Yeah, or, or the, the equivalent. Any,
0: was there, was there a, uh, were there
1: theoretical constructs? Uh, well, their real belief systems about the real world around them blend in at some indefinite Point in the past where you can't really tell if they're talking about spirits or preachers that are real and, and you can describe. So the, the borderline between human beings and the nether world of spirits and deities is very vague. And in fact, when they want to say something really old, they will say something like. At the time when Moon's blood spilled to Earth, and they have a myth about the origin of human beings, and it begins with the character Moon. Moon was a cannibal, which they are disgusted with. Every time, for example, I would shoot a taper, a big ungulate in the tropical force that weighs about 500 pounds, but they have the best-tasting meat I have ever eaten, and they don't take them very often, so I would cut a big fresh slab of meat off the hind quarter of the taper, put it in a frying pan, flip it over, rare, and then just eat chunks of it, and blood would be running down my mouth and beard, and they would so disgusted with that. You're going, you want to turn into a cannibal. (laughs) So they're really disgusted, you're going to be like Jaguar, he eats people. (laughs) Anyway, Moon was a cannibal, and he was once. It's hard to tell if he's human or spirit, but in a more human aspect of Moon, he came down to earth as the moon sets, and he would capture Yanomama, souls, and eat them between pieces of cassava, which is odd because the Yanomami they they do make cassava, but it's nothing like the cassava it's found in the rest of the Amazon basin. Anyway, Moon ate souls of human beings with cassava, and he would descend slowly back up into the sky. And the two culture heroes decided to shoot this varmint. Who was decimating their population. And the first one was left-handed and therefore a bad shot. They associated leftness with being Sina, or a poor shot. So he shot arrow after arrow at the fleeing moon and he kept missing. And the other brother was right-handed and a good shot. Hit Moon right in the belly. And where Moon's blood dropped to Earth, it changed into Yanomama. And where the blood was thickest, the Yanomama were really violent and fierce, and they fought constantly and exterminated each other. And where it thinned out, when it spread through the water, the Yanomama formed by that blood were more suave. Friendlier, and they didn't exterminate themselves. But nevertheless, the of white, no even they were violent and fierce, and where it got almost thinned down to nothing, just water. They were pretty timid, and most of those are foreigners. So there was a, a
0: uh, an essentialist theory of yeah. the, the the roots of, uh, of violence. Right. They called it oh, the blood yes,
1: and it almost perfectly fits the geographical descript- uh, distribution of the Anamama, except in the southwestern corner. If you look at all the villages of the Anamama, the ones to the north and east that are on the periphery are the least aggressive and least violent. That refugees? All... Well, not, not quite. I mean, there are other kinds of refugees. But these are the Anamama that the Brazilian anthropologists study. Ah. Were there any skeptics of these received myths? I mean,
0: I've heard from uh, Louis Liedenberg among the sun. One one would tell him the official story of sunrise and sunset, namely that the sun was murdered at the end of every day and his bones would be... Uh, thrown across the sky to be reborn. You could even hear the whistling uh, at night. And, yeah. But then the guy said, You know, that's a story, but you know, I've listened hard. I've never heard that whistling. <laughs> oh, Did you ever get any yes. atheists, <laughs> agnostics, skeptics yeah. yes. among your. Uh, One of my oh. best
1: informants, a man named Carl Boa, who was telling me the myth of Naro. Narrow was kind of an opossum, but it smelled like a skunk. Naro is a really stinky creature. Anyway, this episode of Narrow, he climbs up a tree and they chopped the tree down, a branch was bent way over under the, strained, constrained by a spider web. Anyway, and they chopped the spider web, and Narrow goes flying off into the sky. And my foreman said, You believe that? <laughs> <laughs> Do you so they, the, there are philosophical skeptics among the animal. Too. <laughs> That's reassuring. Right. I mean, since at
0: least since uh, Alfred Russell Wallace, there's been uh, uh, curiosity about the roots of the ability to do science mm-hmm. in, uh, in, in pre-literate and uh, um, foraging peoples. Did you and Liebenberg argues that it's the ability to uh, infer the behavior of animal through through tracks mm. that's the basis of our the cognitive ability to do science? Mm. But I take it there's more general inference from evidence that you saw in the anaconda. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm trying to. I mean, they did they did have a theory of the um, demographics and sociology of concentrations of population and violence than they explained by unobserved entities. Right. Uh, But were there... uh, Did you see other cases where they really acted like uh, folk
1: scientists? No, but... Now that you've got me thinking about it, there is... I think there's a general correlation between Native peoples in the Amazon... or in South America in general, and the, the sophistication of their numbering system. And the degree to which they intellectualize and have concepts of, say, the, the, the stars in the sky and have constellations, or the complexity of their baskets. And I think numbering systems tend to be correlated with complex basketry and complex cosmology. Now, I don't know, a good example from my work among the that illustrates that. Let's, let's switch to uh,
0: uh, emotion. Your, your colleague Donald Brown at, at uh, UC Santa Barbara wrote a book on human universals mm-hmm. in which he uh, repeated the, the uh, hypothesis by Paul Ekman that all humans display and experience six basic emotions, happiness, surprise, fear, anger, sadness, disgust. But um uh, what about the, the rest of the spectrum of emotions romantic love, pride, jealousy, nostalgia, guilt, shame, shudder well, uh, that's, one <laughs> <question>. <laughs> that's one question that's one question do you get a sense in having lived with them for for many decades that their general range of emotional experience was similar to ours different from ours I, with I think emotions it was quite
1: quite similar to ours with with some major differences for example, I don't think romantic love exists among the Anomama, even though Helen Fisher, for example, and people like like Helen who do that kind of research. Yoni Harris was a student right. of hers, or a student of Don's. Well, we had a knockdown, drag out argument on her dissertation. But I think, well, first of all, the Anomama are so inbred that when they marry, a wife she's very often related to the husband by a factor of genetic coefficient of relatedness is much closer than first cousins so kin selection theory and affection and obligation to a close kinsman it I think becomes entangled with notions of romantic love mm-hmm. secondly if romantic love really existed in societies like the Yanomama, why do the Yanomama refuse to marry their parallel cousins who are as related to them as their cross cousins? In fact, they regard the parallel cousins as sisters or siblings. And there's no affection whatsoever. In fact, it's a taboo relationship. So, culture and classification of kinsmen interferes to a certain extent in the emotions that they might have. And finally it's marriages among the Alabama are like political marriages, like the the hierarchy and aristocracy in England. I mean, they are for alliance purposes and villages can only get be certain size if the right individuals in that village, the headman for example, choose their mates or have their mates provided to them by special other people. So there's a very political dimension to young, young marriage. There have been years and years of discussion about alliance theory in, in anthropology, alliance, and it's basically marriage theory. And all these complex models that Levi Strauss, Rodney Needham, and David Mary Ray, and Lewis were fascinated by they almost never entail any kind of violence and warfare like the Anamama have. Their alliance is a real phenomenon, not just a, a fancy structural model of some kinship organization. So there's some teeth in marrying certain kinds of cousins. That, alliance. Were there any
0: uh, Romeo and Juliet stories where the uh, elders formed an alliance, but perhaps the betrothed couple had other ideas? There
1: are occasions where young people run off into the jungle and have illicit affairs when they shouldn't have them. And one could probably argue that it's not simply lust. It may, in fact, be a very large amount of affection or, as Helen Fisher might put it, some star glittering out of their eyes kind of you know, perfection.
0: What about uh, humor? Can you, you share I any think good Yanomama jokes with us?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the Yanomama almost never get bald. They're all, until death, they have... Abundant Uh shocks of hair like yours, for example, (laughs) Professor. That is curly. (laughs) That is curly. But one of the missionaries, the one that came to the village with me the first day, his name was, they gave him a name, Pa, which was the name of a fish. And when he moved back to the village after I'd been there for three or four months, he was in his house and I built my own little hut away from the house. And whenever I went visiting the Yanomama from one village to another, I would I had a shotgun, and I was a, I'm was a pretty good shot, and whenever I'd shoot a, a monkey, a certain kind of monkey that has this really elegant tail, they use the tail, they take the bone out of the tail by cutting the tail open, likewise pull the bone out, and where the tail on... Their head during festivals. They're de- decorative. And one day I shot two of these monkeys, Basho is the name of the monkey. And they wanted me to, buy. I gave them all the meat. I, I drew a line, I, I don't eat primates. <laughs> Despite blood running down my, my mouth when I ate. Tape it, when <laughs> I anyway. It uh, was professional courtesy. Right, <laughs> Anyway, they asked me, I, I, I wanted to keep one of the tails for me so I could make my own little decorative thing. And I said, Well, I am both of the tails. You only have one head, though. <laughs> and I said, Well, I'm going to give them as a gift to Powell, who was bald as a cube. <laughs> and they just, pss, out they almost rolled out on the ground. They thought that was so funny that Powell would need, Two of these monkey tails to cover his bald spot. <laughs> so, I mean, that's one example. You,
0: let's let's switch there to, to uh, conflict, which has generated so much conflict in the interpretation of, of your work. Well, you, as you
1: pointed out in a little brief introduction to me, I've talked about a lot of things other than conflict, but conflict is my specialty. <laughs> so, you. Um, documented that one
0: of the things they fight over is women, Mm -hmm. which is significant because there's a frequently repeated myth that uh, native peoples have, since they have no wealth, there's nothing to fight over. And it's only when you have the accumulation of wealth that there's anything worth Mm -hmm. stealing. Whereas if if people fight over women, they always, in principle, have something to, to fight over. But is it... I think it's not the only thing that they fight over. It's one casus belli, but they, they can also fight over well, you, territory yeah, they, and...
1: I'm not sure if territory... We can discuss that at great length because and there are many different dimensions of this territorial thing that we're now raising. But the other mama will, 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 for example, fight over honor. If somebody disses a colleague in the village, when a, go, a guy goes out hunting and gets a big game animal, he is pretty much obligated to share that game animal out with especially his in-laws and people that he's married. The people who his wife came from. And they're, they're all living in the same village, but they have cross cousins and things like that. And sometimes these guys are, they have grudges against each other. So at a feast, where the meat is being distributed, you can really offend somebody by, instead of giving him a T-bone steak, you give him a peacock or something. <laughs> and that would be very offensive. Everybody would notice it. And that could lead to a complication further down the line, what like, this guy diss that last meat distribution and bash his head in this club fight. So that's one thing you can do to... I mean, so honor If you were to say, well, the Anahama are aggressive because they have the strong honor code, well, that's only a tip of the thing that they, they, uh, the complex series of things that they can fight about. Or somebody might steal a person's tobacco. They frequently run out of tobacco, and when they run out of tobacco, their word for being without tobacco is to be in poverty, to be... Only, utter poverty. I'm so only. Anyway, to tell you how, how important tobacco is to them, I, one of my guides and I, had to make my own canoe to get out. Where my other guide ran away, took my canoe, and left us both up there to We're die up, uh, up the creek without, a, creek, without a canoe. <laughs> 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 anyway. After we ran into the first Yanomama that we saw in several days, the the Yanomama they share their tobacco all the time. They're not good on the germ theory of disease, for example, one guy will put his tobacco down, the other guy will pop Chewing chew, tobacco. Yes, day, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. They they put tobacco wads that big around and that long between their lower lips and their teeth. Anyway, he laid down in the sky Oh, I, I was so poor I thought I would die. He was sucking on this old, three-day-old wad of tobacco from the other guy. So one of the things that they do when they run out of tobacco, they're not good planners for surplus production, so they tend to be producers. So it, there aren't many foods that the animal will fight over, but tobacco is one of them. They, they uh, will steal yeah, that yeah, cash of yeah. tobacco from another and village? And they yeah. are so... No, even in their own village when they get when they get poor, homey, anything goes and so people will actually plant booby traps in their tobacco patch, like sharpen femur bones of a monkey and bury them like bungee sticks, bungee bones. And they're intended to make it expensive if you go in and snitch somebody's tobacco. They they tend not to fight over like plantains and bananas.
0: High-value items. Right. You've written written a lot about their conflict resolution uh, techniques. Uh, Can you say a few words about how they try to... First of all, what are their attitudes towards conflict? Do they have a... Mm -hmm. To what extent do they valorize conflict itself? Do they Mm -hmm. believe that it's manly and honorable as opposed to
1: deplorable and wasteful? And what do they do about it? I wouldn't say that they're polar extremes are, as as you have stated it, they don't like to fight, actually. They prefer to be friendly and amicable and live life in harmony. But they're caught in a conundrum of the following sort. The only way you can live that nice, happy, free life is if you're in a small community, like 25 people, most of whom are children. So everything is happy and friendly. People get along with each other. but a people a village of 25 people is extremely vulnerable to raids from the outside. And the men will come in and steal the women and send the men back, or shoot the men and take the women. So they're constantly being pressurized to maximize the size of their village. And as you increase the number of people in the village, you you get increasing amounts of conflict. To get on each other's nerves. Right. And occasionally they'll explain to me why did, I mean, the question I always ask, all villages fission, why why did such and such a group fission away from such and such a group? And occasionally they'll say, we just got so damn many people that we're on each other's nerves all of the time, so we just split apart. But when, when the intensity of warfare is high, that would be really hazardous to split apart. And what I often find is that you have a garden that might be you know, 20 acres large, which is a big garden, and a fight might occur in a village that might be 200 people. And instead of picking up and moving the next valley over, they can't because they're too dependent on their gardens. So they split the Chabanau into two parts, each located in a different part of the garden. Then they begin transplanting their, their plantain cuttings and banana cuttings and tubers to some other location, maybe a day's walk away, until they get that garden developed to the point that it can feed them. Then they move away. But they may rejoin and Move away again if. They Do they ever attack preemptively? Like, let's wipe them out before they wipe out us out? Um, that's rare. And it only happens recently when the Anamama are put in a position where they acquire firearms, as Catholic missions frequently give them to lure them away from the Protestants. And that's un- unfortunate. It's happened a couple of times in the area I know best. And so when the, the guys who get the shotguns get the shotguns, they say, well, let's go kick some ass over the other valley and they'll go shoot and kill people and, and they have no quarrels with
0: it. But now, not, I, out of, not out of fear of being attacked first, no. just out of a uh, no.
1: naked aggression? Well, once you... Know, I, I, the Armama explained it this way to me. <clears throat> when you give a fierce guy, a gun, he wants to use it. But subtracting away the guns, is there when the
0: villages are attacking each other, uh, is it... uh, how much of it is out of revenge? How much of it is out of fear? It's almost
1: almost always for revenge. Uh They're... Well, it's like Meggett's book, blood is their argument. The onamama will always attempt to avenge the death of a kinsman. It may take them a long time, and when the tables are turned on the guys that did it, like they get too small as a group, then they it may, may appear to be a preemptive strike, but it's it has some historical roots. So it's almost never a case where they attack another Yanomama village preemptively for for no reason at all. It's usually some some a consequence of some previous argument. Is, it, is there
0: a uh, moral justification then for the attack? It's like we, uh, they had it coming. Yes. Uh, we're yeah, doing, we're yeah. doing the right thing. We're achieving justice.
1: Right. Even And they'll rejoice and say, I spattered his blood all over his wife and his kids and even his dog.
0: <laughs> what about standing back and uh, saying, I mean, they, at some point they must figure out, well, we're avenging that death, which was caused when they avenged the previous death and the cycle of violence has gone on. Is there some way that we can extricate ourselves from that? Did that thought occur to them? Because it can't, I mean, they must at some point do the math and realize, well, not not every killing can be in revenge. You are asking
1: a profound question here. And the answer to that, I think, is best explicated in an incident that happened to me when the Yanomama began being aware of Venezuelans, for example. It was a territorial capital about 800 miles away, and the, some of the missionaries sent young guys to the territorial capital to learn practical nursing to come back to the village and treat snake bites and scratches and wounds and things like that and to give malaria pills. And they taught him how to use microscopes. But one of these guys came back, and he's, he was just terribly excited when he told me that he discovered policia. I said, what's policia? They will grab people and haul them off and put them in these little separate houses if they do something wrong. And I think we need policia, because my brother killed an Iwahikarova five years ago, and I'm always worried that the Iwahikarova teddy are going to come and kill me because he's my brother. And he thought if they had law, law would be a good thing. And ironically, the whole origin of anthropology began when early lawyers, jurisprudence and MacLennan and Morgan. They were astonished when they came to the New World and saw all of these huge populations living in harmony and they couldn't understand how they could do it. Well, kinship was part of the answer, but they began thinking seriously. Well, it goes back to Plato, too, about the origin of the state. But a lot of legal minds in England and in the United States we're astonished that the political state could evolve out of primitive tribes like the American Indians. So you're,
0: you're, uh, you're you know, you discovered a kind of yon so Hobbes who rediscovered the Leviathan. Right. Or at least appreciated it. <laughs> final, final question, and, and it uh, flows out of your answer to the, to the last one. But is there any, how, how should we think about what we uh, should do with indigenous peoples? How much of the uh, fruits of civilization should we share? How much should we try to preserve them or allow them to preserve themselves? How much do they want to preserve their that's a traditional dilemma. way of life? And what, you must have given a lot of reflection yes, I have.
1: To, to this. Uh, One uh, answer right off the bat is if you cripple the patient, you better provide the cure. And to a certain extent, that's what civilization has done to the indigenous peoples. It has introduced diseases and things in their population that we are responsible for, and I think it is our duty or our obligation to make sure that if we contact them at all, that we should contact them with their well-being, their physical well-being in mind, and provide medicines for the things that we've introduced to them. From my whole point of view, I thought about this a lot. I mean, it may be better to not contact primitive peoples if any of them exist anymore at all. I mean, they're going to be corrupted by Western civilization and die off. I once made a comment that missionaries, Protestant missionaries just loved that if they get contacted by Venezuelans or Brazilians, they're going to end up as bums, beggars, and prostitutes on the periphery of the little tiny towns that appear everywhere there's a frontier. And that's another thing that is, is in fact happening. And in Brazil, where the Yanomama have much more... Contact, most of the harm that's been to the Yanomama has been on the Brazilian side of the border, inflicted on them by Brazilians, not Venezuelans. So, most of my enemies are on the Brazilian side of the border, though, the I mean, anthropologists say the Brazilians. They're faulting me for saying things about the Venezuelan Yanomama that they think is doing the, the Brazilian Yanomama a terrible harm. Well, I, I, I'm not talking about the Brazilian Yanomama, although they probably are very similar in most, most areas. But we can't leave them alone anymore. I mean, there's no way in the world to we can contact Native peoples and avoid the consequences of providing some sorts of resources to repair the damage that the contact itself has created. But can you imagine a,
0: uh, any kind of sustainable arrangement between yes. Indigenous peoples right. and modern civilization? Or would they just Since not contacting them is uh, no longer... That's not barn. What I
1: wanted and to do, in the case of the Anamama, was to train some Venezuelans or some Brazilians, or some Peace Corps or you whatever, know, and make little tiny trading posts available in the really uncontent parts of the Yanomama so that <clears throat> the Yanomama would be able to have access to medicines if they needed medicines, or useful tools like machetes for clearing their jungle and maybe even learning how to read and write and allow them to accommodate themselves to a more gradual change instead of a really shocking change, like an epidemic coming in and wiping out half the village. So this is one of the things that I was toying with, but I could never get Venezuelans to go along with it. One more question, which is
0: uh, you've, you've spent many decades with the Anamama, you've accumulated an enormous amount of uh, film footage, of field notes, of genealogies, of uh, descriptions. Uh, what What now? Are you going to, uh, have you donated this to an archive? Are you planning to uh, uh, put it online so that other ethnographers who will not be able to work with uncontacted people will be able to mine more information from the the data that you gather. Yeah, I
1: I think the database I've collected is extremely useful and it would be a shame if I were to perish from this earth without making it available in an intelligible form. And I got to do a lot of work on it. Only I know, oh, so-and-so is related to so-and-so, and that ties a whole bunch of stuff together. I've been thinking about that for a long time and Fortunately, the University of Michigan has an institute for social research which has huge databases on, on traffic tickets and demography and things that Martin Daly would be fascinated with. But they are now experimenting or, or toying with the idea of making an indigenous database, starting with mine, because I have so much data. So I was recently appointed as a research professor in the Institute of social research at the University of Michigan, but I have to pay my own salary. (laughs) So when the University of Missouri offered me a job, I could take my data there and get paid to do this from the University of Missouri. So I'm developing this database, which I will leave a copy of at Missouri, but I'm also gonna give a copy of it to the University of Michigan, who will then make it available online at major research universities who have legitimate students interested in exploiting this data and it will be eventually shared very widely in the academic community. Thanks, Nat. uh, We've managed to touch just a fraction of
0: your observations over those decades and uh, I know that reading of your work with the Mm Yanomama in uh, in your books has been one of the most uh, uh, informative and fascinating reads in my career, and so I encourage anyone who's enjoyed this conversation to go back and read the original books. Well, oh, that's
1: a great compliment from somebody like you, Steve. I did it all for you guys.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we have a, a very distinguished
1: peanut gallery. Uh, who have been listening to our conversation, and I wonder if uh, Professor